are here at 11FS headquarters in London WeWork for episode 14 of Blockchain Insider. Today we bring you the latest on traditional finance versus cryptocurrencies with Christine Lagarde, the head of the IMF, speaking about Bitcoin. We look at South Korea, Australia, the SEC and DJ Khaled. What do they have to say about ICOs? We have two fantastic interviews from Yelzan Garbuthi of the Gibral Network and Jennifer Peavy of the DTCC. And we also speak to Adam Fergal from R3 about their recent announcements. So we've got a packed show. On with the news. So joining me for the news once again, it's at Colin G. Platt. At Colin G. Platt, how are you, sir? I am doing fantastic. Yes, yes, you are in so many ways. And we are delighted to be joined by the one and only Frank Schul. Frank, how are you? I'm doing pretty good. Frank, uh, new to Blockchain Insider. You've been on Fintech Insider before. Just tell everybody a little bit about who you are and what you do. So I'm living in Sweden, originally Dutch, where I founded in 2013 a company called Safello. Uh or your safe fellow into the crypto market. Uh, we've been around for four years helping people uh, get onboarded into the cryptocurrency market. It's amazing how often I hear people say that the user experience uh, inside crypto is absolutely atrocious. And so for somebody to be focusing on user experience like fellow makes a lot of sense. And I know there's a drinking game for when I say makes a lot of sense, but that really does make a lot of sense. <laughs> so you're going to get drunk in this show because we've got some great stories. The first one up, uh, Colin, we have to uh, look at this story here. The link we have is in Fortune. And this is uh, where Christine Lagarde, uh, who of course is the uh, MD of the International Monetary Fund, uh, comes out and says, it may not be wise to dismiss virtual currencies out of hand. Colin, uh, why do you think she saying this and and what specifically did she say well so this is this is a really interesting one um christine Lagarde, obviously running the imf means a whole lot of different things in addition to generally helping a lot of countries that maybe don't have the strongest monies out there that aren't they're not running the us dollar they're not running euros or the pounds have to link up with other different currencies through processes like um pegging dollarization so if i have um that's Another currency, let's call it the East Caribbean dollar. Um, I like to match that up with the US dollar. Um, she broke very strongly from the likes of Jamie Dimon, uh, CEO of JP Morgan, Ray Dalio, uh, the famous hedge fund founder, uh, and said, well, there, there may actually be something here if we talk about dollarization 2.0. Um, and she was very visionary and forward thinking. She's not saying everybody needs to be in it now, but she is saying um, there may be a future to these things. And Maybe even citizens will start demanding this from their own uh, central banks. So she's looking at two different routes. First is we have a, a basket of currencies, and in that basket of currencies, maybe part of it's Bitcoin, maybe all of it's Bitcoin that we link this thing up with. Um, the other thing is individual virtual currencies coming straight out of banks. Obviously, we've seen some news out of uh, countries like or cities like Dubai talking about using cryptocurrencies on their own accounts for their own citizens. Maybe that's a trend that we'll start to see more about. Really interesting and really positive to see it. I love this uh, statement you make there, Colin, about dollarization 2.0. I think it's worth just explaining that a little bit. This idea that uh, that there are, have been economies historically that when their currencies go to uh, hyperinflation, they start to rely on the US dollar and holding the US dollar because it keeps its value. But the thing with the US dollar is it's paper. And if you're in a war zone or if you're in some kind of disaster zone, then paper is kind of flimsy. It can easily get lost. It's pretty easy to steal. So this is where something like Bitcoin, Frank, might be useful. I think just recently in Zimbabwe, we saw hyperinflation where the premium on the Bitcoin exchange there went almost 100% just because people were fleeing to Bitcoin. Um, so it's it's a natural way to preserve your wealth uh, in case of when you have hyperinflation. So sure. there you have it. I, I do think it's interesting that we get people saying, don't dismiss this stuff. You get very senior seasoned economists saying, actually, there may be something to this. That That's a, a real shift in tone and mood. But Colin, speaking of, of shifts in tone, uh, there's a story from the Wall Street Journal, which uh, are not known for coming out with, with uh, things that aren't well-researched, um, saying Goldman Sachs expects explores a new world trading bitcoin what does exploring a new world mean because i'm thinking that's elon musk's job right <laughs> they're creating a rocket I, I would say it's probably more the realms of elon musk than goldman sachs um yeah so we're called blockchain insider for a reason um we don't necessarily have too much inside information on here at least that we're willing to share today but having worked in banks uh and i think simon you you can add on to this 
a lot of this gets overblown because it does sound exciting. Um, my my speculation here, and it's purely that, is there probably are people in here that have bounced the idea around, and somebody got a hold of that and said, ooh, Goldman Sachs is going to trade Bitcoin. The story effectively doesn't add a ton in there other than to say it's very early stages. It may or may not go ahead. Um, and the speculation is, of course, that Goldman Sachs could one day adopt Bitcoin as amongst um, an electronic currency uh, or commodity of some sort. Frank? So what we're seeing uh, as a company is companies are actually banks that have now been approaching us to actually look at as a new asset class that they want to trade. At the market cap that we're seeing, cryptocurrencies as a whole, um, it's it's an asset class that they can no longer ignore. So we, we're seeing real interest uh, in, in Sweden now, Avanza has integrated crypto wallets into their um, accounts for their customers. Um, we're seeing uh, Scandiabank integrate Bitcoin wallets, so there's definitely a trend uh, there. But generally, just at the, the, the market cap of the overall cryptocurrency market, it can no longer be ignored. So the uh, example in this Wall Street Journal article is that the uh, the daily average trading volume of uh, Bitcoin around $750 million is reasonably significant. Uh, and that would put it up there with a, a global equity along the likes of the uh, Caterpillar company who uh, do uh, whole kinds of industrial machinery and equipment. Uh, so this is um, you know, a serious-sized equity that... Uh, large institutions can and could be trading and there has been for some time uh, a lot of institutional money waiting on the sidelines trying to get into this space but no banks legitimizing it enough i think what frank's talking about is slightly different which is on the retail consumer end the ability to access it through your online banking portal sort of uh, creeping legitimization on that side uh, and then also the legitimization you see as people like goldman explore the idea but i, I want to echo colin's point uh, that my view on this as somebody who's worked in a bank is this is somebody in a research desk somewhere saying, hey, we could do this rather than we're going to. Um, we, we've been approached by large banks, uh, particularly from the FX side, to look at this. So not only retail that I'm talking about, but how serious that is, that is, of course, a second, yeah. <laughs> second question. There's early explorations, for sure. And I think that's why this word explore is really key. And, and Colin, I want to... Um, talk about the next story here because this creeping legitimization of the cryptocurrency space is is my macro theme for the year uh, and the big one for me is uh, both uh, jcoin and uh, japan licensing 11 exchanges so start with jcoin for me what's jcoin so jcoin is effectively an interbank currency that works on a blockchain which is quite cool um, it's what we've been talking about in the private blockchains and this is exactly it we have 11 Japanese banks that no longer need to necessarily use something like um, a central bank to settle cash between themselves. Um, they can just say, well, I'm going to send this thing over this blockchain that we're going to allow my money to pass through to your bank. And thus, you recognize that I've paid you and vice versa. Um, the, the other thing that, that's quite interesting in there is the, the actual exchanges. So the moving from that private blockchain that we're talking about with Jcoin to a number of um, actual full-fledged Bitcoin exchanges. Um, of course, this is in Japan, which um, has legitimized Bitcoin as a payment system inside the country. And of course, Japan is also the location of the first Bitcoin exchange, the ill-fated Mt. Gox. Um, so maybe they've learned more than everybody else through through trials and flames, um, which is fantastic to see that they've moved ahead. Um, Japan will be in the news, I believe, a lot. I really do think that's a key point. Japan is going to be in the news because there's two things I want to point out to listeners as being significant. The finance regulator has issued licenses for 11 Bitcoin exchanges, and those licenses aren't like the bit license in uh, New York, where they're considered really hard to deal with. This is something that's becoming normal. We've covered on the show previously that large internet companies are mining Bitcoin. And you think about why Japan might be interested. Uh, Japan is an economy where they are seeing deflation of their currency. They've had 20 years or more of, of kind of real economic woes. They've got negative interest rates and they've got an aging, uh, that aging population combined to make it. There's a need for this kind of asset that gains value more so than you'd see in China, more so than you'd see in India. So it doesn't surprise me that those are the sorts of economies that are are adopting it uh, but it's also very uh, interesting that their neighbors china are being so very different from a regulatory approach 
All right, I got to move us to tokens, Colin. We can't get through a week without talking about tokens. And there's the first regulated token sale. Um, apparently, Overstock have opened an exchange for legal token trading. Uh, how big is this really, Colin? That That's a hard one to answer. Um, obviously, Overstock is very bullish on this. Um, Overstock, uh, of course... For a couple of years now, um, has been very forward thinking in public open blockchains um, through their subsidiary T0. Um, have done things such as launching um, some equity share classes actually on the Bitcoin blockchain uh, and some crypto bonds in Overstock itself. Um, they have a really interesting system where, though it's on Bitcoin and kind of kind of flow everywhere, there are a lot of controls on the front end, so you can't really do everything that you would necessarily think you might be able to do, um, being that it's on Bitcoin. Um, they have seen this giant demand for ICOs, uh, $2 billion plus funding uh, in the last couple of years. And obviously, they want a piece of it. They found a way where the SEC has knowingly given them permission to let them list their own equity onto a blockchain. And they said, well, why don't we just extrapolate this out? Does this really replace the ICO funding we've seen? Probably not, because a lot of that has gone for the fact that um, there are no controls and no licenses. And uh, this is very much the other approach, just happens to use Bitcoin. Different approaches here. We've seen, though, that Overstock have been trading their own shares on Bitcoin for a little while. And nobody's been blown away by the volumes on those. This is probably the first, but not the uh, not the biggest or the greatest. It's kind of it w people may point back to this as as being the uh, the first regulated one, but I, maybe there's a trend here of, of other ones coming. There is like there's a company called Polymath that is also looking at bringing uh, securitized tokens. So it's it's the next generation of tokens after the ERC twenty tokens to bring securitized tokens to the market um and i and overstock obviously has been around for a long time doing uh, all kinds of innovative stuff around the blockchain and i guess this is a natural progression of the strategy that they've already had it's definitely worth a look and i think uh, related to that there's a story here from coindesk colin the saft arrives or the simple investor agreement um, and this is aiming to remove some of the complexities for people investing in the ico space and really make sense of it and uh, does this come from our friends at cooley law i believe from cooley and protocol labs um so patrick merck who we had on the show a few weeks back um, was a central part of this. And um, in in the crowdfunding space, there is such a thing called uh, an SAFE, a SAFE, um, which is a simple agreement for future equity. Um, it it gets, aims to get rid of a lot of the, the issues and complexities of issuing stock to average investors from a early stage company. They've taken a lot of those, changed the work around and, and said, let's do something on tokens. Not everybody's in agreement know that these necessarily get rid of all the problems we're going to see in ICO land, um, but they definitely have started to get avenues. Filecoin, obviously, a uh, very big raise of uh, was it $250 million or so, uh, did use a SAFT agreement of some sort, uh, and this is the next generation. Uh, fantastic to see that they're doing this in an open way, and I've seen Today, lots of banter back and forth with lots of different lawyers, including our good friend Preston Byrne, um, about how they might um, see these things differently and ways that they can uh, update their white paper of sorts um, on a SAFT. So good to see. And uh, this could fit in with the overstock approach or maybe a third approach. Yeah, no, it, it makes a lot of sense that somebody would try and identify some lightweight type of agreement that protects the consumer that fits within regulation. Uh, I think there is a view that there's it, it's kind of a bit of a round peg in a square hole but then it's the closest thing we've got and actually it's a very sensible answer with the with the regulations that you have uh, in the US right now um, and I guess it's well timed given that the SEC have announced their cyber unit to police ICOs and other DLT violations in air quotes Colin. Yes so we've all been saying the SEC is coming the SEC is coming they're they've come. Um, so they've set up a new unit uh, based out of their New York offices uh, that are looking at everything cyber. One of these cyber things are ICOs and DLT related violations. 
Um, not yet clear what a DLT related violation would be other than um, a normal violation that happened to use a DLT. Uh, but the real big focus I think here- so, Colin. Yeah, it's that normal violation that happens to use DLT. Um, scams and people spoofing websites, the Slack scams we're seeing. That, that idea and then also the amount of people that have raised capital and then done nothing with that capital. So they've purported there was one, I think, example where the SEC is investigating an organization who raised capital to invest in real estate or, or property diamonds i think as well and, and diamonds and then never turned around and actually invested any of that in property or diamonds and therefore have clearly broken the law and ripped off their investors so the sec have probably done the right thing by by stopping that they're starting with these smaller unknown icos and they're working their way up to the big fish is what i'm expecting the sec to do it's, it's interesting, though, that there are those who have taken this approach, like uh, building the, the SAFT, um, trying to fit within regulations, trying to be responsible to investors. And there are others that are blatantly flouting it. And there's probably no downside to, to clearing this up. I mean, Frank, you have welcomed regulation, I believe, in the cryptocurrency space for quite some time. Yeah. Um, but as long as it's targeted and, 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 and put in the right place. What's your general view as we see South Korea banning cryptocurrency sales, um, Australia? Australia making their own first statements on ICOs. seems like every regulator's got, got an opinion these days. And as we mentioned earlier, Japan's going one way, China's going the other way. It, what does this mean for you as somebody sitting in, in this business right now? A lot of questions right there. I, I think it's very healthy, right? So we're gone from a completely unknown uh, phase in the cryptocurrency space to something that becomes more clear. And every country is now positioning itself in how they're going to deal with these uh, cryptocurrencies and ICOs. Um, the banning is a logical one. I think it's all temporary. In all countries that are banning ICOs, they're going to, especially China, they're going to take a pass now and then they're going to figure out how to, to move forward. For a company like us, yeah, you, you see maneuvering in terms of ICO, like how do you go about uh, structured in such a way that you can anticipate what the future regulation is going to be? Um, and it's really hard. You see companies like Civic that set up an entity um, where they book everything as revenue and they pay taxes on the revenue. Uh, and in that way, you know, they've already paid taxes on it. They clearly make it a non-financial product. It's a token, a utility token to verify identities. So that, that those are like maneuvers away and then, you know, both geographically, uh, both also technically on, for instance, token sales. Um, that all, all plays into you know, like how, how can you avoid, you know, being sued or by your investors or getting sec uh, after you in the I, future i think it's difficult because the nature of cryptocurrencies the nature of tokens is they are global and the nature of regulation is local and so you've got a lot of people trying to predict what the regulation might be trying to be as sensible as they can be and also trying to maintain some sort of banking relationship with various different regulatory responses out there in one market it's easier in lots of markets it's harder and i'm seeing that there are a number of people doing more traditional crowdfunding in one market uh, that seem to probably have less uh, ability to raise capital in the short term but more ability to fit in with their local regulator in the long term so there's there's these interesting patterns starting to emerge but colin there's just one more comment that we need to get to around the icos and token space and this is dj khaled as the latest celebrity to endorse an ico After paris hilton ah that's great yeah we well so like he wasn't on our list we had dwayne johnson has been jamie our, fox as well well dwayne johnson hasn't done it yet but if anybody was going to who would you want to uh, endorse an ico I, I wouldn't want any of them to endorse an ico and i think some of them are going to be sued yeah. So, well, well, this may be why Paris Hilton's actually pulled her support for Lydia Coin after it came out that the founder was facing possible jail time. So, um, backing away slowly. You know that um, gif of Homer going back into the hedgerow? I think uh, one of Paris Hilton doing that um, from Lydia Coin would, uh, would be a funny meme to see happen. So, listeners, you, you've got challenge accepted, I hope. Um, Colin, you've got um, a couple more stories here. Uh, there is the uh, ex-billionaire who says the crypto market will be the largest bubble of our lifetimes. Now, given how big the crypto bubble is compared to, say, the dot-com bubble, do you think he's right here? Well, I, I don't think he was actually trying to use bubble as, as to make his point. So um, what uh, Mike Novogratz, who used to work for a Fortress Investment Group, which is um, a very large uh, hedge fund um, in the realms of uh, what – 
billions of dollars, has decided that all of a sudden, uh, after flunking out of that, he's going to get into Bitcoin um, because he sees this thing's going to go through the roof and dis- be disconnected with everything else. But it's going to change everything in the world. Um, he just wants to get in on the trading action. We said it before. We're going to say it again. Trader's going to trade. He he sees an opportunity. He wants to make some money here. Um, it's great to see that people are looking at this as a real asset class. We talked about it earlier in the show. We're talking about it again. I I'm not sure if Mike is necessarily going to have more success than all of the other crypto hedge funds out there, but he does have a big name on the street, um, albeit not for the best things. So I think he's launching a $500 million ICO fund particularly, right? That's that's the headline. And that's actually behind the bubble, which everybody <laughs> in the media was following. He is launching an ICO fund. So he's, he's clearly a believer in it, at least for, the, for making money off it. And, and it, he may it, also be talking his book. <laughs> you know it is the dot-com bubble mm-hmm. but what happened in the dot-com bubble is you know went to 1.7 trillion i think the market and then it imploded but from that same dot-com bubble we we got the googles the facebook's of this world right so that is what's happening now and of course you're going to make some long-term bet and you're going to make some short-term trading bets um and, and both are happening right now but it's interesting though that that you quote 1.7 trillion for the Nasdaq, whereas the crypto markets have barely pu- pushed uh, 150 billion, and you've got a big inflation in there, right? So, um, have we even seen the beginnings of anything like a bubble yet? Um, but as as Colin says, trade is going to trade. Trade. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, last story, Colin, is um, Accenture went and got a patent for their editable blockchain. Now, I have a lot of respect for a lot of people at Accenture. I have some of my favorite people work at Accenture, but I have real trouble with this one. Um, I'm not so sure that an editable blockchain... It, well, I, there was a tweet of the week, and I'm going to try and find out who it was so we can credit them in the show notes, which was, um, I think they misspelled database. Nice. What do you think of this one, Frank? Uh, of all the news items, I have not any opinion about Accenture <laughs> making an edible blockchain. Um, I haven't looked an at the tech. edible blockchain. Well, how tasty is that? That's very tasty. It does sound like a, a block, uh, like a database, but uh, you know, I, I have to dive deeper into the tech to make any reasonable. Uh, so here's the thing: they're, they're talking about a chameleon hash, which is actually a really interesting piece of cryptography that allows you to, under certain circumstances, give a number of people a set of keys that can go back and change a set of data. Um, should you have the requirement to do so. However, that seems to me like the kind of thing that could easily be solved and has been solved um, by every other major blockchain program out there. So, for example, Corda uh, works in a very different way where people get uh, copies of the data and how it's stored. The actual data isn't stored as if it were on a blockchain. It's stored on worm drives. And worm drives, well, that's how all of the uh, all of investment banking works today. And for those not familiar, write once, read many is an immutable database. Financial markets are already using immutable databases. So building an editable blockchain may actually be breaking regulation. So I think that whilst it seems like Accenture have built something that on the surface you think you need, it's great cryptography that actually has already been solved, in my opinion. Colin, do you have some views on this? I echo your opinion that there are some very smart people in Accenture and that this was a very dumb move. Um, I remember their original press release was a, what about a year ago where they announced this fabulous new editable blockchain and promptly got everybody to take the piss out of them, even people that hated each other. Um, and uh, it may be breaking the, the regulations, as you say. Um, the other thing is it, it puts people in a very difficult position. What happens if I'm the administrator, my keys get compromised? That happens. Um, and all of a sudden, I'm editing all the things. The only thing I would say is I hope this patent isn't on an Accenture blockchain. Yeah, well, here, here. Um, so, I mean, look, Accenture are going to be in a position, I suspect, of doing a lot of work for a lot of people. And I know there are smart people there uh, that understand the rest of the market as well. Uh, I believe this actually comes out of a university originally, and they've endorsed it. Um, but you know, he- here's to um, maybe some different headline choices from the PR team might be might be more appropriate. I want to give a shout out before we uh, round up on the news. Um, there was an op-ed by um, Michael Casey. For those of you who aren't familiar with Michael Casey, his work. He's written a number of books. He, he wrote a great book on the financial crisis. He was also played uh, by an actor in The Big Short, um, so worked at the Wall Street Journal for many years. Fantastic writer. His story, uh, or his uh, article here on uh, 
why China hates Bitcoin and loves blockchain is a fantastic read. It's it's quite long, um, but he goes into um, their kind of uh, strategy for their Bricks and Road initiative, and um, which is essentially their Marshall Plan for uh, kind of gr- projecting power throughout the world and building growth, and how uh, that is at odds with uh, kind of the the core values of decentralization and cryptocurrency. And there's one sentence I want to pull out here that he says, "You can't order creativity into existence through government diktat." And he's pointing out that uh, Western economies may still have an advantage over China because China wants this single-party control of the internet, yeah. and sometimes creativity comes out of chaos. Frank. This is why they've been quite ambivalent on their stance on cryptocurrencies, because on the one hand, you want to have control and capital controls uh, uh, over everything you do financially in, in the country. And on the other hand, you want to get ahead with the technology that you know is going to change the world and maybe going to change money forever. Uh, so that's why they have a really hard time uh, either banning it entirely or embracing it entirely. So they're sort of in between a rock and a hard place. I think it's very difficult. So we're going to speak to Michael probably next week, and it'll be uh, in a couple of weeks' time where it drops on this show. So, uh, But if you have time, I do recommend checking out that article. All righty. Uh, well, that does us for another week of news. Um, shortly, I'll be speaking to Adam Fergal from R3. But before we get to that, uh, Frank, where can people find out more about you and what you do? Cefalo.com is our website. Um, I also have a company called Rhino Venture through which I invest in some ICOs, but I'm overloaded with requests. So uh, just go to Cefalo.com. That's what we like. And uh, Colin G. Platt, where can people find you? Um, on his website, trolling uh, for investment in ICOs, uh, as well as Colin G. Platt on Twitter. Fantastic. Well, that's it for the news. When we come back, I speak to Adam Fergal from R3. Great. So I'm back. And of course, Ach- Colin G. Platt is still here. Colin, say hey. Hello. And I'm joined by the wonderful Adam Fergal from R3. Adam, how are you, sir? I'm very well. Good morning, Simon. Good to have you here. So you guys have been pretty busy lately. Um, I'm curious. Tell me, what's the deal with this um, news you have where 12 banks are doing a thing on trade finance and quarter? Like, what, what's going on there? So we've been very busy. And what, what we've seen is the industry moving from early stage experimentation to solving real business problems. So there's lots of people doing lots of real work now. The news that's come out recently with TradeX is an example of that. So we're working with a startup in the trade finance space called TradeX, about 12 12 to 15 banks across the R3 consortium to deliver and, and build out a new open account trade finance solution. Okay, so what is open account trade finance, I think is a key. So it's basically um, buyers and sellers financing things. So if I'm selling uh, a pallet of auto parts, if I'm shipping a, uh, a bunch of beer, uh, if I'm moving things around, it's how you, how you um, finance those things. So the buyer of them, of course, wants the goods uh, before they pay, and the seller of them wants the money uh, before the goods are shipped. So this is connecting buyers and sellers. So it's a, it's a traditional product uh, in corporate banking and one that is very ripe for uh, automation. And why is that ripe for automation? Because you say traditional, but what does that mean? So there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of complexity in this. So it's establishing trust between parties, establishing a relationship between parties and automating those. So a uh, using a distributed ledger technology and a network uh, that can establish the trust and, and automate rules is, is a really fundamental opportunity in this space. And uh, these guys at TradeAX and the bank see this as an absolutely massive opportunity. So it's a startup that we're, we're strongly supporting. So what's, what's actually going on here? Is the goods leaving something and then something's finding out and triggering a payment? Like what, what's the specific bit of functionality that's, that's been worked on? Yeah, exactly. So if you could automate um, the invoice, if you can automate the purchase order, and you can have a single version of truth throughout the cycle of the trade, you can do very, very powerful things. So if everyone on the network can sign up to a single version of the truth, I can start financing those invoices, I can start financing those purchase orders, and I can start moving goods more effectively. So everyone wins, the buyer wins, the seller wins, and the banks win. Uh, and it's all about the customer in this case. So that sounds pretty ideal because I don't know if um, any listeners have ever dealt with purchase orders, but oh my goodness, and invoices and just as somebody who's uh, involved in procurement as a small business, I can tell you that stuff's painful. Um, Colin, um, you're curious about this um, commercial paper trade one. Talk me through commercial paper trade and um, see, see if we can find out what's, what's going on uh, with Adam R3 and, and that one as well. 
Yeah, so Adam, we covered this one last week. Um, I, I remember early days R3 um, when David Rutherford spoke with me. He was talking about commercial papers being one of the, the first use cases. So it feels like, and I think trade finance is in there too, it feels like you guys are kind of ticking down that list uh, a couple of years down the road. Is this a sign of things to come? And why was commercial paper one of those first things? Yeah, I think it certainly is a sign of things to come. So so I think it's really it's executing all the opportunities that we found. And this is always going to be a long journey, uh, as we all know, right? This uh, These magical blockchains aren't just going to take over the world uh, in, in, in six months. So the, the commercial paper trade we, we view as a sort of a foundational uh, use case. And we're, we're very excited about what... Um, what the team at Commerce Bank is doing, driving this forward. So it's an this is an actual trade working with an actual customer issuing debt uh, on a quarter ledger. It is uh, certainly a sign of things to come, and it's uh, just a, it's an early trade um, that is showing the power of 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 these technologies. And so, of course, commercial paper issued by Commerce Bank in this case would be, let's say, Ford Motor Company trying to issue very short dated debt. Uh, to finance their ongoing operations. It could, of course, be Commerce Bank itself or anything else. Um, very large market. Um, so if you guys are able to build something that takes over as a standard, um, this impacts not only the banking system, but lots of big corporates around the world. Um, really, really interesting use case. And thanks for sharing more. I'd love to hear more as that comes online. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the next one up is the, you guys have just been, you've been through a bit of a spate of it lately. It was kind of like you guys went quiet for six months, got your heads down as you were kind of trying to get focused. Maybe maybe that was it, or maybe that's just how it appeared uh, from the outside world whilst the ICO party was going on. But um, this um, this one really caught my attention. Um, and it may not be the most sexy one, but I know I talked about it on a previous show. This is where the Financial Conduct Authority in the United Kingdom being the uh, regulator for financial financial services, um, have a mortgage reporting use case with uh, RBS and one of the bank. So the mortgage reporting piece, uh, I'm going to quote uh, Richard Crook, who's a good friend of the show, talks about the regulator um, really having a difficult time because he's getting uh, reports from lots of different banks that might not agree with each other. And so Richard says they're like the the person with two clocks. They can't tell the time. So is this starting to, to solve that? And, and, and is it using Corda behind the scenes? Indeed. I mean, we're we're very excited about this. Um, we've seen a lot of talk. I mean, I think we've all been on stages talking about the value of, of, of blockchain and distributed ledger technology for regulators. And, and we've all talked about it. But what we're doing is we're moving that uh, from talk to action. So what we did is we got uh, uh, Richard Crook, who you mentioned, was, was in the room with us for, for two weeks with a bunch of devs, with the FCA, uh, with a bunch of product experts. And we built a thing. We built a mortgage reporting solution uh, with the industry, with the FCA, on top of Corda. Uh, and what it what it does is it gives a single version of the truth between the banks and the regulator. It gives real-time access to the regulator's reporting. So you move away from a solution where banks are reporting on a quarterly basis, taking uh, and then the FCA is taking sort of a month to distill that, and then out comes sort of pops the answer, which is which is a bunch of questions, as it always is. It's moving that that long running process from a from a reporting, from a data collection, from sort of an ETL based extract, you know, transform load process to a single version of the truth of a portfolio of mortgages um, shared on a distributed ledger. This is very very powerful. Uh, we started with mortgages because it was a relatively easy use case, uh, but this is equally as applicable in other asset classes, and we're we're very very excited to to drive this one forward. I, I like this one because when um, some senior executive af often asks me or comes out with uh, there's a meme I think amongst the executive class which is oh it's a solution looking for a problem. I, I say no, there are a lot of problems out there that this solves, and I think primarily uh, how difficult are large investment banks finding reporting, and how difficult did the global economy find reporting in the last financial crisis? So steps like this to me are, are hugely positive. If um, There's a good friend of the show, Ajit Tripathi, who talks about during the last financial crisis, experiencing people uh, trying to figure out their exposure to Lehman and just not knowing what it was and trying to do it with spreadsheets. Uh, if you're reporting in real time to the regulator, you're able to do that. Um, and uh, that, that can really 
help a lot of situations. One, in terms of reducing cost. Two, actually giving you the visibility of where you really stand, both from a regulator perspective and internally. So, uh, Adam, before I let you go, I'm going to ask you to tell me a little bit about um, Corda 1.0 and where people can find out more, because it seems like 1.0 is kind of a like a thing now, right? People can use it. It's it's definitely a thing. So we're 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 absolutely delighted to announce that that Corda version one was released uh, this morning. Um, so so devs can go get it. Corda.net you can get the codes, open source source code, uh, lots of documentation, lots of white papers, uh, public Slack chats, forums. So this is a very clear signal from us to the market that application builders, solution builders can build on top of the Corda platform with confidence. So the, the signal here is that all of the APIs is are stable going forward. So you can build Corda applications uh, without us changing uh, the innards of the system. So, so all of our partners love this. The fintech startups that are building on Corda uh, the product companies that are building on Corda, the professional services firms that are building on Corda, the banks that are building on Corda, and lots of other industries as well that are building on Corda, not just uh, financial services, are going to love this, right? So this is the this is the first of a long journey, but but basically uh, the ability to build with confidence going forward. So we're very very excited about this. This is. Uh, sort of the culmination of, of two years of research and development. What I like about this is it's real, right? There's all this talk in the space. There's all of this hype. There's all of these headlines. But you can go to a Git repo and you can pull this code and you can have a play with it. So I would encourage everybody to do that. Adam, thank you very much for being with us. And thank you for letting us hear what all three are working on. Thank you very much. Great. So I am here with the wonderful Jennifer P from the DTCC's Office of Fintech Strategy. Jennifer, can you tell me a little bit about who you are and what the Office for Fintech Strategy does at the DTCC, please? Sure, Simon. Thanks for having me on your show. So um, I'm Jennifer Peavy. I am responsible for business development and fintech strategy at DTCC. And back in 2015, December of 2015, DTCC launched an Office of Fintech Strategy Initiative, which was really designed to help the organization develop technology foresight around multiple technology innovations. Um, So we look at all different technology innovations across different the different maturity life cycles, things like quantum computing, AI, big data, distributed ledger, and blockchain, um, as well as you know we we monitor things around robotics, RPA, and uh, cybersecurity. Oh, is that all? <laughs> <laughs> That's it. So um, I'm quite quite busy in the, in the group, and we work across the organization to help our business heads understand the impact of these technologies, any opportunities that they bring, and how. We we might leverage them and capitalize um, on the technologies themselves. Cool. And it might be worth just for some of our listeners who aren't familiar with uh, just a quick intro to the DTCC itself. Can you tell us a little bit about who that organization is? A lot of people in financial services know very well who you are, um, but it's probably worth just a quick recap. Sure. So DTCC is the premier post-trade market infrastructure um provider for the global financial services industry. Um, what does that mean? Through our subsidiaries, we automate, centralize, and standardize the post-trade processing of financial transactions. We mitigate risk and increase transparency um, to help drive efficiency for broker-dealers, custodians, and asset managers worldwide. To give you a, a sense for how much business we actually do. In 2016, our subsidiaries processed securities transactions that were valued over $1.5 quadrillion. Um, The depository itself provides custody and asset servicing for securities issues from over 130 countries and territories that are valued at $49.2 trillion. I'm just saying Jay-Z doesn't have $1.5 quadrillion. (laughs) No, it doesn't. (laughs) And it doesn't stop with securities. Um, We also have a derivatives business, and through um, the DTCC's Global Trade Repository, we maintain approximately 40 million OTC positions per week, and we process over 1 billion messages per month. So to mom and pop, this is basically, if I have a 401k, if I have uh, any kind of pension scheme anywhere around the world, and I bought some US equities and or the entire derivatives market, I'm probably going to touch the DTCC in some way in the back end of that. Some company behind the scenes is having to touch that in order to process that, in order to manage it, in order for the thing to happen. Exactly. 
I think it's puts you in an interesting position then as this whole blockchain subject comes around, because surely if you guys are one of the middlemen in the subject of financial services, then blockchain would be very interesting to you from uh, it could create efficiency. But the assumption was, I think, many years ago, well, it's just going to make you guys irrelevant. So how do you view the subject of blockchain? So, you know, when we started looking at blockchain, there was a lot of discussion in the industry about how blockchain was going to disrupt um, DTCC and other incumbents. I think the reality is when we started talking with um, our clients and other institutions um, was that it's really more of an efficiency play right now. That makes complete sense. When I look at the market of uh, $150 billion, it's not nothing, but $1.5 quadrillion is quite a bit more, and making that more efficient probably has still an awful lot of value. So what specifically has the DTCC been doing? So we've um, we've spent a lot of time looking at the implications of the technology and how the industry really should be thinking about and progressing the technology. So we're strong advocates for collaboration. So we're participating in open source distributed ledger organizations. So we're on the governing board, technical steering committee, and multiple other committees of Hyperledger, for example. We co-chair the banking working group of Enterprise Ethereum Alliance, a new um, a newer open source organization. We um, have also contributed thousands of lines of code to open source. That's something new for DTCC. But um, in doing that, we've been able to also lead multiple work streams within those communities. We're also operationalizing the technology. And so that's probably one of the more interesting and exciting um, components of our engagement to date. Um, we're about midway through the development in replatforming the DTCC's trade information warehouse, which supports the 11 trillion credit derivatives market. And we're doing that using both cloud technology and distributed ledger. I think it's the combination of those two technologies that really makes this pretty compelling. All right. So there's so many things in that last sentence you said that I want to pick apart because the combination of technologies, it's not just blockchain as a silver bullet, I think is a hugely significant point that that I think people often miss. It's not just this blockchain thing in isolation. Actually, it's engineering and engineering is kind of hard. And then the other piece around... You threw away the comment that there's an $11 trillion market that you're operationalizing blockchain in. People often ask me, is this subject all hype? When is it going to be real? I think for you guys to be looking at both the trade information warehouse and what you're doing in credit derivatives, that's becoming quite real. What have you kind of learned could be the potential benefits in this space as, as you've looked at it? So I think benefits actually depends on the use case, right? So for the trade information warehouse, what we really saw was the ability to reduce our operational costs, right? And so by replacing mainframe with cloud and distributed ledger technology, we did two things. We were able to reduce our internal support costs around the, the business itself, but also start to lay the foundation for this data sharing across our, our counterparties and counterparties to trades. And what that does is it sets up a longer-term vision for the industry to, to potentially capitalize on by adding additional asset classes and or additional services to this blockchain or leveraging this blockchain. And so once you get when you get to that point, you can see benefits such as organizations being able to reduce their technology footprint and also um, additional cost savings and reducing just operational costs um, and reconciliation costs within their organizations. More specifically, though, if we're talking about when it's becoming real, uh, talk to me about some of the things people are actually doing right now. Yeah, so I think, you know, we're definitely in a period, a reality period of heads down, right? So a number of financial institutions are looking at some of the critical areas to making an implementation a reality and not just for small use cases, but really focusing on how do you make those transformative use cases real. And that includes having to look at things like you know, scalability and high transaction throughput. If DTCC processes approximately 1.5 million settlement related transactions per day, the number of actual trades that are cleared per day is infinitely, it's multiple times higher than that because we have netting. And so how do you ensure that you have an enterprise ready distributed ledger that you can employ and handle this level of transaction volume? So, you know, R&D around that space is pretty critical in order to make that 
you know, transformative use case come to life. I think there's also some work that needs to be done around smart contracts. It's a very nascent technology. Um, programming languages around this technology are changing every day. And firms who want to adopt nodes on networks really need to think about, you know, how their organizations are going to support multiple smart contract languages and technologies that they're trying to bring in-house. So that includes having to look at their skill sets around some of those technologies, as well as um, working with their CISO organizations to understand how they're going to bring that technology in. And then, as we've already talked about, you know, the interoperability um, becomes, you know, very important, again, because there's already a proliferation of technology providers, platforms, solutions. And so how do you bring those all together? Um, and governance is in there too. But I think those are probably some a few key areas that the industry needs to tackle. I love the statement that people are working with their heads down. I find that there's a disconnect between what you see when I talk to the C-suite uh, in banking uh, and across financial services versus what's actually going on in the trenches. And what's going on in the trenches is people are doing the hard yards right now. And I think it's really important to highlight that. So there's a number of audiences that could benefit from what you said there. One, uh, you said an answer ago that you're doing most of the stuff um, with open source based technologies. You're actively participating in the Enterprise Ethereum Alliance, actively participating in Hyperledger. So the benefit of your wisdom is being passed into, into those groups. That's one way in which that open source community can benefit. But two, this point about if a new asset class comes along and you built something that is somewhat generic in terms of the trade information warehouse, it could sit in there quite comfortably and benefit from all of the compliance and governance overhead that the DTC is kind of known for. So that uh, kind of where does this uh, new asset class world, where does the rubber meet the road with that? Well, you guys seem quite open to that from the sounds of it. Yeah. So I think when we look at when we looked at sat down with the industry last year and we looked at that longer term vision, it was interesting, right? It's fun and interesting to, to throw things up against the wall and see what sticks. But ultimately, you know, when we, when we talked through what the value of creating this distributed ledger was for the industry, it was really all about how do they reduce their technology footprint. And, and the way to do that is to, combine these asset classes, whether it's on a single ledger, creating a single data pipeline um, of multi-asset class, or if it's ensuring that interoperability between um, chains, and that could be like chains to, you know, or it could be um, different chains having to integrate to each other, or it could be chains to legacy systems, but creating an ecosystem and governance model around, um, around that such that the industry really benefits. So you you talked to a key point there. A lot of people in financial services, the big issue is operational cost. It is the issue. Uh, and if that's the issue, if I'm a bank and you're a bank and everybody's a bank, or even on the buy side, no matter who you are as, as uh, somebody who's as a market participant, you've kind of got the same set of processes. Everybody's doing the same steps and repeating them, duplicating them everywhere. So this idea of blockchain comes along and in theory means that there's one straight through process across the entire industry. But now everybody's got their own flavor of blockchain. Uh, the DTCC has a history of governance. Do, do we not risk uh, recreating the maze here, as, as somebody once said to me? Can we find ourselves in a position where if there are 30 flavors of blockchain, are we not just exactly where we are today, where we don't get the benefits? Yeah, there is definitely a risk of that happening. But you know, that's why it's super important for the industry to collaborate and work together towards this common vision. And so what I think has been fairly interesting about this operationalizing the trade information warehouse is, you know, we're, like I said, we're about halfway through our development cycle. And, and during that process, a number of questions um, and discussion points have been raised for, with us and between us and the industry around um, things like governance, around things like node administration, um, and then also this proliferation of and bifurcation of blockchains and or distributed ledgers across multiple asset classes, etc. So, you know, I think the industry as a whole is definitely very aware of the challenges that that we face if we if we don't collaborate and work towards this common vision. Um, so, you know, it still remains to be seen, but um, I think there is definitely momentum and interest across um, the financial institutions 
organizations that, that we're working with in understanding and developing a common ecosystem around this. So talk to me a little bit about um, work outside the DTCC and financial services. There are a number of standards bodies. I mean, you mentioned uh, outside of financial services in open source, there was EEA and there was Hyperledger. But what about the ISDAs, SIFMAs, all of these sorts of organizations? You, I'm assuming you're involved in many of those as well. Yeah, we absolutely are. So, you know, when we first started looking at blockchain, I mapped out all the different industry organizations and associations. And it's really quite, um, quite amazing how many different organizations and standards bodies are, are involved in blockchain. It's wonderful. And, and so DTCC is not only involved in the open source communities, but we are uh, members of Digital Chamber of Commerce. We're members of Coin Center. We work with the likes of ISDA and some of the work that they're doing around the common domain model. We um, are part of SIFMA's blockchain roundtable group. And we um, also present and educate and and work with policymakers and regulators on a global basis to help, you know, really partner with them throughout this journey of learning about blockchain technology. It's super interesting to me that people often are in one camp or the other. They, they are either in the, the DLT banking world or they're in the permissionless blockchain world. And especially if you're in the permissionless blockchain world, I think it's very easy sometimes to forget how much work is going on inside the DLT banking world, as I would call it. Uh, and I think there's some fantastic innovation that the DTCC and others are doing. So if people want to learn more about what the DTC is up to in fintech generally and, and kind of uh, in, in the blockchain space, where do they go to find out more? So, you know, DTCC, we have our website. You can certainly find um, information out on our website regarding our fintech um, efforts. So, Jen, thank you very much for being on Blockchain Insider. I appreciate the invitation to be here. Thank you, Simon. Thank you. Great. So I'm here with Yazan Baguthi from Gibral Network. Yazan, how are you, sir? I'm good. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being on Blockchain Insider. So, Yazan, tell me a little bit about yourself before we get to, to Gibral. Who are you? <laughs> okay, well, uh, just like most in the community, I'm a tech enthusiast, massive crypto enthusiast. My academic background is chemical engineering. So obviously with the first blockchain and proof of work and its ties to thermodynamics, um, I found it especially appealing. Um, I, I spent my career as a management consultant, uh, specialized in financial services, with a core focus on wealth and asset management, particularly for large uh, sovereign wealth funds, sovereign states, et cetera. Um, and the blockchain revolution is happening and um, I, I wouldn't be true to myself if I didn't throw my hat in the ring. And there are many problems um, we're witnessing day by day and they're growing scalability, um, regulation, systemic risk across the crypto economy. And it just seemed like an excellent opportunity for someone with a financial services background to institutionalize the industry. So let's pick apart some of those problems because you're going to look at one of those problems and think with your uh, financial services background, hang on a minute, there's a way to fix this. So which problem did you pick when you were looking at Gibral uh, Network as a, as a solution to a problem? The main problem was the financial industry uh, as a whole, right? Traditional banking, consumer banking, retail banking, these things work. The biggest the reason we do them is we model them and they work. But you have bloated organizations, convoluted processes, human subjectivity, like we saw in 2008 with credit agencies or with mortgage lenders, etc. So, so we're trying to use the blockchain as an autonomous layer to remove all these unnecessary elements. And then what you end up with is a clean layer of institutional traditional banking um, with almost no one working there, right? Uh, so, so tell me what it is then, because I think if we're going to get this uh, change in banking that solves some of these challenges, we're going to need a new thing. And as you say, in this blockchain space, there are lots of new things, the whole DLT space more broadly. Uh, inside of the world of financial services, there's a lot happening with Corda and Hyperledger and even Enterprise Ethereum Alliance now. And outside of that, there's this explosion in innovation happening in the, the token sales space. So is there a specific area you zoomed in on and said, well, actually, if we could just solve this one bit of the problem as a wedge issue, then we can start to get towards that vision of a better future? Yeah, that's a great question. There is a lot of happening and uh, a lot of people struggle to answer the question to what end, right? And I can't answer it for them, but I can tell you a bit about Gibral's history and how we got to where we were. First, we wanted to use blockchains as a remittance solution. And then the ICO craze happened and people were raising millions, tens of millions of dollars in days, minutes, hours. 
And this funding was locked, at least the good, the better companies would lock their funding in smart contracts to stay true to their investors. You know, and these, the funding would then get released by milestones or time periods or whatnot. But the funding was locked in a cryptocurrency. Exactly. So I'm somebody that's going to go raise this ICO to fund my new project, but I've received a load of Bitcoin and Ether. And of course, Bitcoin and Ether is volatile. Exactly. So you could be a company that raised $100 million one day, and then the next day you have $50 million in the bank. Now, with these large numbers, it might not be that big of a concern, but as the industry matures, you're going to see companies extending themselves, using their capital efficiently, I hope, and that means that the volatility could lead to insolvency. So to protect the companies against that, we thought, okay, there needs to be a better way to do this. Cryptocurrencies are amazing, and the things we can do with them, like fundraising, is amazing. But the reality is using it for this multifaceted purpose beyond its architectural purpose, uh, where we use it for remittances, we use it so that's a currency, and to reward miners, again, a currency. We use it as a speculative investment tool, almost like equity. And we use it to raise funds, almost like a convertible note. In the real world, these are separate things and they're regulated separately. And they serve very different purposes and have very different requirements on them, whereas we're trying to do all of the same with all of these things. So, so what solution did you come up with? So the first thing we wanted to do is put financial assets on the blockchain, traditional financial assets. So uh, it might not make sense to store your funding in ETH, but if you have $100 million, you could put them in treasury bills. And by the time the contract unlocks, you're not at the whims of the market, your investment actually appreciated. You just made money off of that. And on the flip side, you have people who want to capitalize on the crypto economy. So they're more than willing to sell their treasury bills on chain, especially if they can do it at a premium. So, so there are people willing to take the risk and there are people willing to who want to de-risk the funding they've received. Exactly. So there's, there's both sides of a market there. So just like as a consumer, I could um, buy bonds um, from governments and 10-year gilts and uh, gold and all of this sort of stuff to de-risk my portfolio or even property uh, as a fund. You're saying that there are people who've raised these ICOs who want to do that. And on the flip side, there are people that want to sell that type of product like a bond, like a treasury onto into the crypto markets, tokenized in some way, because they believe they can uh, profit from selling them in those markets. Exactly. Um, there's this phenomenon we call, just like every other company has a buzzword, ours is on-chain, off-chain arbitrage. And the reality is when you tokenize an asset and you sell it on-chain, if the consumers um, have a strong belief that that token is redeemable for the underlying value, its value on-chain is greater than it is off-chain. That's really interesting. So I often hear from senior bankers, like, none of this stuff's ever going to stack up. None of, we can never have it because it's never going to work with real currencies and real assets. There's too much of a gap. There's too much of a moat between the regulated world and the non-regulated world. And then yet I look at companies like Navora here in the UK who are selling securities on a blockchain regulated by the FCA today. Yeah. That is being done uh, and, and solving a relatively small but growing market problem in, in doing so. So your point being, when that happens, when somebody does take an existing real-world asset, as you call it, so this uh, treasury bond, um, this this uh, stock maybe, or, or whatever it is, or, or even US dollar, when they take it and sell it on chain, it actually trades at a premium. So a dollar is worth a dollar five, a dollar ten. Exactly that. Like let's take the case study of Tether, when the consumers had full confidence in them redeeming the underlying asset, it was trading at a dollar three cents. Yet, when they were having issues with their Taiwanese bank, it was trading at 92 cents on the dollar. So it's probably worth saying though that the dollar probably has a discount on it because of the euro dollar market, which probably needs stepping through for those who don't have an institutional background. But the US dollar is used by a lot more than US companies. It's used around the world as kind of a global reserve currency. So as you say, in Taiwan, there are banks holding onto the US dollar so that they can ensure a payment happens because somebody wants to get paid in dollars. But as a result, the overall value of the dollar decreases because the a lot of people that aren't domiciled in the US or who aren't credit worthy US banks are holding on to those dollars. So therefore, if I have increased confidence that I'm actually going to get that money because I've got this technology that says you have to get it, there is nothing that can happen but you get it, then it's more valuable to me. Exactly. Um, and the current solutions out there don't give you that guarantee because they all incorporate a central centralization element, which is almost nonsensical if you think about it in, in the decentralized world. To so argue with the senior executive who says, but centralization has worked. 
because it, you say it's nonsensical and yet uh, I, I talk to a lot of people who find it very hard to imagine a world without that centralization. Which is, that's very odd though, because if you go some, most of humans existence was in a decentralized structure, right? It's only modern history that man has uh, relied on institutions and centralization. That's a modern phenomena almost. So to say that something works based on such a small cross section of time. Uh, but but you, you mentioned a, a short while ago that the banking system as it is today isn't perfect, but kind of works. Yep. To that person who feels it kind of working, even though it may have its problems and its challenges, what is the advantage of this? Given that they, their perception of it will be, hey, this is in an unregulated space and it isn't it all just dark markets. How do you walk them from there to the benefits of this? Okay, that, that's what people struggle with, right? Like yeah. decentralization for the sake of decentralization is just as horrible as a centralizing a decentralized system, right? The, the question we asked at the beginning, to what end? Yes. Um, if you decentralize something like a security and you embed the regulation within it, um, you've cut out so many middlemen across the process. A tier one bank could save up to $15 billion a year um, just by cutting out these superfluous processes across the board. And, and I think if you're in a large bank listening to this, you'll probably be well aware of uh, on the investment management and asset servicing side, or not asset management, but asset servicing side of the businesses, uh, as well as the uh, kind of broader capital market space. There are a lot of intermediaries. Uh, we have done a lot of centralization, all of which add cost, all of which add complexity, and all of which don't really reconcile very well and create errors and breaks and problems in what is largely still a paper-based economy. So what you're saying is actually just just a new form of digitization with a different type of technology. Banking was all, always historically over the counter, as we call it, OTC. I could deal with you directly, but the regulator wanted to see what was happening. So they put it in the middleman so that you could also make it a bit more efficient. But if I can deal with you directly and in dealing with you directly, the regulator can also see it and you can have certainty that you will get that payment or that I'm good for that payment then you've got something that's more valuable. Exactly. And what you just described doesn't change the business model. It doesn't turn everything upside down, right? It's a simple progressive step enabled by new technologies to deliver value. And that's something people don't realize with blockchain is blockchain isn't a race to create new value. It's a race to eliminate costs. And so expand on that for me a little bit, because you mentioned the, the tether concept. And I think we've just got to call out uh, implicitly what that is again one more time. This is the idea that I, for the example of tether, they take like a US dollar and then they put these tokens into the blockchain market um, that represent a real world dollar that they say is held at a bank somewhere in reserve. You're saying you do something similar, but you guys are slightly different at Gibral. Yep. So Tether, I think they ran into some legal issues where they're not allowed to redeem the asset. And even on their website, they say that they may not necessarily redeem the underlying dollar, right? And that's not that big of an issue now that it's on chain and there's some sort of consumer confidence. But we really want users to be able to trade for the underlying asset. It makes no sense if it's just a representation and it can never leave the system. So yeah, you want real dollars, real sterling, real euros, real bonds, real gold assets to be traded, albeit they're moving in this tokenized way uh, on this new blockchain in this new system versus how they used to move. Exactly. But how do you do that without centralizing, right? And, and that's one of our innovations. So with Tether, you send us a dollar and they send you a dollar token, mm -hmm. right? And whether or not you can ever get that dollar back is a different story. But with Gibral, we have a smart contract completely decentralized on-chain. So it's, it's smart contracts sitting on Ethereum. So this is a piece of software that has been given the power to run in many places around the world and can only do what it's told. And you've said to it, okay, you now have this smart contract that's following the rules for you. So it's not you at Gibral that's doing it. It's this net decentralized network that's now has to follow these rules. Exactly. So there's a rule book deployed on the blockchain. And whenever someone transacts with tokens on our network, they have to follow the rule book. So let's say I have $10,000 tokens in my account and I want to send them to you. In the real world, I'd have to have completed a KYC form. Mm -hmm. It's above a certain threshold. And I'd have to complete that form to facilitate the transaction. Um, whereas this limitation doesn't exist on chain. And how do you implement this 
Well, yeah, absolutely. That was going to be my next question because in the real world of financial services, there are a whole bunch of rules. Yeah. Um, like I can't start sending millions of dollars around the world without somebody asking questions because I could be a criminal. Exactly. Uh, and broadly, most people, not everybody, but most people want criminality to be stopped for the good of society. And in the society we have and the regulations we have, it tends to be the banks that are on the hook for doing that. So how do you police those in this decentralized world? So we've, we've discovered, created something we call smart regulation or governance without governments. Uh, basically, it allows these tokens to always behave in a KYC AML compliant manner, although there's no one specifically overseeing them, but there's the Gibral DAO or the Gibral Decentralized Autonomous Organization. So these rules you've taken from a particular jurisdiction or you treat them by the, by the asset and where the counterparties are? So it has to be jurisdiction. So you have to do it by asset class and by jurisdiction. And that's why it's a massive undertaking, right? We have to translate all these real world regulations into solidity code and then deploy that on the blockchain. So you have to take all of those real-world regulations that are coming out of the regulators, turn it into that software code that runs on Ethereum, Solidity code, as you said. And then let's say I'm somebody who wants to move dollars around the world. I could come to Gibral Network and do that quite easily, but I'd have to go through some uh, know your customer. So I'd have to send you driver's license, passport, other bits of information about myself once it had reached a certain size. If I was trying to send it to the US, for instance, and I'd be subject to US law within your system. Exactly. Um, that being said, the restrictions are on a use case basis. So if you were sending $7,500, you wouldn't be flagged. We try not to inconvenience the user beyond... Um, beyond the actual law. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So who would you say your key customer segment is for this? Who's it for? So right now we're piloting it as a back end for banks, right? It's like you described. Uh, we can use the same systems, but use this as a backend and facilitate all the use cases everyone is touting about. Why would a bank want this over the millions of other blockchains that are being sold right now? To be honest, I can't speak about the other blockchains, yeah. um, but we have a product. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know how many people can say that, um, but we actually have a usable product and it's been live on Ropston since April, May. So if there's people sitting in a um, innovation department somewhere that have some uh, spare compute cycles sitting uh, in the AWS instance of Geth, then you could probably uh, give this a go um, and have a try and, and see how it works and the open public network are on the, on the uh, testnet. Yeah, so we, we run a closed demo right now um, and people can reach out and try it out for themselves. Uh, but we'll be releasing the beta within the next few weeks so the general public will get a chance to play around, interact with tokenized assets. What do you think are the advantages of tokenized assets versus, say, the Corda and even some of the Quorum type approach where it's moving towards more managing the agreements? Do you think there's pros and cons to those? Because the, I think the view coming from a lot of regulated kind of discussion is that the only people that can tokenize an asset are central banks um, when it comes to certainly the currencies or the issuer of that asset are the only people that can tokenize it. Do you see pros and cons of like tokenizing the agreement that represents the asset versus the asset itself? Um, I definitely see, see it and, um, and I fully agree. Surely sovereign states should have the right to tokenize their own currencies. And this comes back to how do you control monetary policy? if you don't have a control over the flow and circulation of your money. So surely these rights should sit with the, the issuer. The they could, but they could quite easily set rules and pass laws that where that would be the case. And somebody like yourself would pick those up and go, okay, this is these are the rules now and we're issuing those in our decentralized fashion. But the only people that can issue them into this decentralized network that uses our standard within Gibral Network is this one issuer. Exactly. And you can apply that across the board. So if you want to bring treasury bills to the blockchain, then get a licensed treasury bill broker. And now he can bring his own license, tokenize his own assets, and transact with them on chain. Well, I have enjoyed nerding out with you. Uh, that's been a lot of fun. Uh, where can people find out more about you and what you do? Um, you can check out gibral.network. And there's our white papers available in over, I think, eight languages now. There's a bit about the team. There's plenty of information to learn more there. Yes, and thank you for being on Blockchain Insider. Cheers. Thank you so much. Uh, don't forget, listeners, uh, you can let us know what you want to hear about on the show or give us your views on any of the stories we've covered on Twitter. We are at B Chain Insider. That's the letter B, 
Chain Insider. Uh, share your thoughts or at Colin G. Platt or at S.Y. Taylor if you want to pick on us personally. Um, or you can drop us an email at podcasts at 11fs.com. We'd love to hear from you. And of course, a reminder that it's brought to you by uh, 11 Media and 11FS. Uh, the company that brings you this podcast, we're a challenger agency and consultancy that help banks and financial services providers, even governments and other industries, achieve more with digital. Find out more at 11fs.com and check out the careers page. <laughs>